Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome back to another episode of The Mod Pod, where several authors from each issue of Modern Optometry read their articles for you. So if you're behind on time, don't worry. Grab your headphones and let us get you caught up on some of what's inside the Jan-Feb issue. To start off the episode, Rachel Rubel, co-owner of Belmont Eye and North Lake Eye in North Carolina, shares her thoughts on how presbyopia correcting drops will fit into the treatment toolbox. Let's give a listen. Presbyopia is the reduction of the eye's ability to focus on near objects and affects 128 million people in the United States. Patients sometimes present in shock, questioning what has happened to their near vision. The decreased ability to see close up affects their daily lives, causing headaches as well as the need for additional lighting and holding objects further away. Roughly 45% of patients with presbyopia live with near vision impairment due to lack of adequate vision correction. In a survey of 1,339 presbyopes aged 40 to 55 years old, 90% state they are affected or irritated with presbyopia. The pandemic has led to dramatically increased screen time, putting a higher demand on near vision and causing an early onset of presbyopia. We are seeing patients between 38 and 42 years old with early symptoms. Adults in the United States now spend an average of 3 hours and 48 minutes per day on computers, smartphones, and tablets, and they check their phones 96 times per day. That's once every 10 minutes, according to research from Asurion. So what do we do as optometrists with this information? Traditionally, we have offered our presbyopic patients glasses or contact lenses to correct their failing near vision, but after 40 years, they want to feel young again without the need for correction that may make them feel older. Environmental changes such as altering luminance can significantly affect visual acuity, where doubling luminance levels improves acuity by one letter on a five-letter row. Over-the-counter or prescription reading glasses are the most common option offered to patients with presbyopia as treatment. However, many feel inconvenienced by having to take them on and off to read. Other patients may end up with over-the-counter reading glasses that are not the correct prescription, which could potentially harm their eyes. Progressive lenses are another option, but can be associated with peripheral blur, a restricted visual field, and impaired depth perception. Computer or workspace lenses can improve near and intermediate vision drastically, but still require the hassle of being put on and taken off throughout the day. Contact lenses can be a great option for someone with presbyopia, but multifocal and monovision contact lens solutions also have limitations. Less than half of patients with presbyopia in the United States are even offered multifocal or monovision contact lens options, in part because of the risk of serious eye infections if patients do not follow proper contact lens care instructions. In fact, between 40 and 90% of contact lens wearers 
do not properly follow care instructions. Additionally, contact lenses can be difficult to maintain due to the development of age-related dry eye symptoms and reduced manual dexterity. Surgical options involve invasive procedures, and patients with mild presbyopia have few permanent options. Surgery may include modifying the optics of the cornea, replacing the crystalline lens, or attempting to restore active accommodation. Although patients undergoing surgery report satisfactory outcomes postoperatively, many eventually still require reading glasses. It's important to discuss all of the above options with patients as part of their treatment plan and with the prescription eye drops hitting the market, we have a new opportunity to discuss presbyopia with them and to add a new tool to their toolbox of correction. As eye care practitioners, we need to be ready to offer the latest, safest, and greatest options in eye care. Numerous companies are actively researching drops to correct presbyopia, and one company, Allergan, already has an FDA-approved product ready for patients called Vuity. Vuity are prescription-based eye drops and will be a safe and effective regimen for patients. Ideal patients will have mild to moderate presbyopia, and even those who have previously had refractive surgery, such as LASIK and PRK, are candidates for the drop. With a brand new correction modality available, it will soon be necessary to share information with everyone, including staff, patients, and your colleagues. The following are some simple ways to accomplish this in your practice. Doctor education. With a pharmaceutical treatment option for presbyopia, creating a decreased pupil size, it is important to understand that dynamic pupillary modulation can improve a patient's near vision and that the topical meiotic can also address aberrations that are increased by large pupil sizes without affecting distance vision. Staff education. We need to set aside a scheduled time, possibly with a representative, to discuss the newly FDA-approved presbyopia treatment with your staff. You want to discuss ways to bring it up with your patients, whether by adding it to the check-in form under interested in, or by having a technician bring it up during a pre-test workup. Dissatisfied patients. You could query a list of patients from your EHR or EMR, who may have returned progressives or reading glasses or discontinued the use of multifocal or monovision contact lenses because they were dissatisfied. Reach out to your target population by querying a list of patients from your EHR between the ages of 38 and 55 and send an email blast letting them know that a new FDA-approved treatment exists. This will drive patients in for their annual comprehensive eye exams. Use your social media accounts to share the news about the new treatment option on the market. We need to educate patients, even the pre-presbyopes, that presbyopia will occur, but that there are options available to assist with their vision. The more education we can offer, the more patients it will drive to our practices. Potentially seeing patients who haven't had eye examination in years is huge. It also opens up the opportunity to detect early glaucoma, cataract, and macular degeneration, so it's a great public health benefit. For many optometry business owners, the question will be, how can one financially benefit from an effective presbyopia treatment without losing optical sales and without competing with the increase in online sales of contact lenses and eyeglasses? My answer to that question is this. 
pharmaceutical presbyopia management will provide an increased demand in eye care services. Our patients should be made aware of all of their options as we as their eye care provider should create a sufficient toolbox of treatment options based on their daily activities. Like death and taxes, presbyopia will occur at some point in our lives. Management of the condition allows patients to improve how they function when completing the daily tasks of living as well as their quality of life. Clearly with a new option available in the realm of presbyopia treatment, patient education will be key to determining the best choice. Okay, let's move from one discussion on innovation to another and hear Daniel Epstein, an assistant professor of ophthalmology at Mount Sinai Morningside in New York and Patricia Fulmer, founder and owner of Legacy Vision Center in Huntsville, Alabama, provide an overview of new and next generation technologies and devices in the realm of glaucoma diagnostics. Worldwide, the number of people with glaucoma is expected to increase from 76 million to 111 million between 2020 and 2040. If previous estimates are accurate, then more than 50% of patients with glaucoma will go undiagnosed and 13.5% will go blind in one eye. Although these numbers are staggering, new surgical and medical innovations in the treatment of glaucoma are enabling eye care practitioners to fight back against glaucoma's vision loss. Equally important are the new diagnostic technologies helping us to accurately detect and monitor this disease so that we can appropriately treat our patients. Here we'll provide a review of some of these new diagnostic discoveries. OCT has revolutionized the management of glaucoma by allowing us to quantitatively measure the peripapillary retinal nerve fiber layer and macular ganglion cell interplexiform layer thicknesses in vivo. Both measurements improve the detection of glaucoma, especially in early to moderate cases. After disease diagnosis, both measurements can be used to monitor for progressive glaucomatous changes. Eye care practitioners often gravitate toward these quantitative metrics of glaucomatous disease because of their impressive clinical utility. But OCT is capable of much more than simple thickness analysis. Although the lamina cribrosa cannot be visualized with fundoscopy, Evaluation of various laminar features, such as laminar thickness and curvature, is possible with enhanced depth imaging OCT. In studies comparing normal patients to patients with glaucoma, those with glaucoma had statistically thinner laminar thickness measurements, as noted with OCT. Laminar thickness also correlated with the amount of visual field loss. Patients with more advanced glaucoma had thinner laminas. As glaucomatous axonal degeneration develops, axonal apoptosis and posterior laminar deformation lead to the clinical sign of cupping. The surrogate for axonal apoptosis is measured with our standard RNFL and ganglion cell measurements, but there is still no commercially available metric for laminar curvature. Researchers have used laminar curvature and its progressive posterior deformation in patients with glaucoma as a metric for the detection of glaucoma as a predictor of progression rate. In patients with glaucoma, the laminar cribrosa was located more posteriorly as compared to controls. Eyes that had greater increases in posterior deformation of the laminar cribrosa also had greater rates of visual field progression. Likewise, eyes with greater laminar depth had a faster rate of RNFL thinning. We are only able to detect structural glaucoma's change once atrophy sets in. 
but measurements of the laminar cabrosa may one day provide clinical data before cell loss begins. Until recently, it was difficult to study the microvascular structure of the retina and optic nerve head due to the resolution limitations of fluorescein angiography. Since the invention of OCT angiography, researchers have been able to investigate in vivo vascular changes of the optic nerve head and macula in patients with glaucoma in greater detail than ever before. The loss of peripapillary vessels, particularly the radial peripapillary capillaries that nourish the RNFL, co-localize with OCT RNFL thinning and visual field defects. Although RNFL thickness measurements tend to detect glaucoma better than OCTA measurements, visual field defects correlate better with OCTA measurements. In one study, the improved correlation of OCTA and perimetry was especially apparent in advanced glaucoma, where RNFL thickness measurements reach a floor effect earlier than OCTA. Vessel densities of the macula have poorer glaucoma detection capabilities than peripapillary OCTA measurements that can be used as complementary data analogous to ganglion cell thickness measurements. It is unclear whether vascular changes within the posterior pole are occurring before, during, or after structural glaucoma changes. But it is clear that OCTA measurements provide an objective functional component to our glaucoma diagnostic armamentarium. Spectral domain OCT scans have impeccable clarity in the axial direction, but are limited in the lateral direction secondary to aberrations. Adaptive optics can resolve those aberrations, allowing more detailed views of retinal tissue and earlier detection of damage. However, current challenges of this technology include its cost, limited depth of focus and field of view, speed of testing, and the need for extensive training and specific interpretation tools. The largest area of innovation in tonometry is home-based IOP measurements. In the past, eye care providers were only able to get a snapshot of the patient's IOP while they were in the office, which does not account for the natural diurnal curve that results in higher IOP while sleeping and in the early morning hours. These diurnal fluctuations tend to be higher in patients with glaucoma and ocular hypertension, which raises their risk of progression. New devices, such as the iCare Home Tonometer, the SensiMed Triggerfish, which is not commercially available, and the iMate system, which is only approved in Europe, allow for out-of-office measurements that reflect the peaks and troughs of a patient's pressures and can be used for customized treatment plans. Measured with the Ocular Response Analyzer G3, or Aura, corneal hysteresis, CH, is the difference between the pressure at which the cornea bends inward during airjet eplanation and the pressure at which the cornea bends outward again. In other words, it is the measure of the viscoelasticity of the cornea that corresponds to its ability to dampen forces imposed upon it. Studies have demonstrated that higher CH is linked to a lower probability of developing glaucoma and a higher maintained visual field index over time. With current thoughts suggesting that CH mimics the flexibility within the lamina cribosa and indicates the eye's capacity for shock absorption. Contemporary diagnostic advancements have been made in two aspects of perimetry, testing pattern and remote testing. Traditionally, glaucoma visual fields have been performed using 24-2 and 30-2 patterns, which screen few points within the macular area. Donald C. Hood, PhD, found in 2013 that glaucomatous damage is often present within the macular area of glaucoma suspects and in every stage of the disease. In patients with mild glaucoma, it has been found that 15% of normal 24-2 fields have damage on a 10-2 test. 
Therefore, the 24-2C test was developed based on these new data points. The test includes 10 additional points within the macular area that follow the asymmetric pattern of the bundle, testing the most vulnerable points. One of the newest breakthroughs in perimetry is testing performed through virtual reality or VR headsets. These tests correlate to Humphrey Fields, are available at a lower price point, and can more easily be used by patients who are wheelchair-bound, bedridden, or have neck or back problems. Importantly, they also allow out-of-office examination, which provides an opportunity to perform serial testing at home and offer telehealth, leading to more accurate disease management. Visual is a VR visual field perimeter designed for standardized and mobile assessment of the visual field. It automatically analyzes the retinal sensitivity in patients with glaucoma and other visual disorders and can examine multiple patients at a time for increased productivity. Revive 2.0 is a wearable visual field testing unit that can be used in most lighting conditions to collect vital clinical data anytime during a patient's visit. Revive 2.0 features six diagnostic exams and five CPT codes. Glaucoma-related artificial intelligence, or AI, is being developed to analyze and categorize data from testing, including fundus photos, perimetry, and OCT. These programs can be run supervised or unsupervised and are able to identify progression risk, disease stage, and recommend referrals. Although this technology is in its early stages and needs clear definitions of the disease and normative data in order to be fully effective, AI will likely have a clinical role in screening large groups of patients to identify risk and trends and to recommend further testing in the future. Early detection of glaucomatous changes is imperative to the successful long-term management of this disease. With the introduction and implementation of innovations such as those described above, clinicians have an extensive and growing arsenal of testing with which to combat irreversible damage from this site-threatening condition. There have been a lot of new developments in glaucoma, and that's exciting, especially for the long-term outcomes of patients. Next, and to close out the episode, we're going to hear from Stephanie Frankel, an optometrist at Bascom Palmer Eye Institute at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine in Miami. Dr. Frankel tackles an interesting question. Where do specialty contact lenses fit into the evolving medical optometry practice? Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. The focus on medical optometry has increased over the past few decades, and most practitioners are aware of the benefits that it provides in driving your optometry practice down the medical track. So the question becomes, how can you set yourself apart? Introducing or offering specialty contact lenses in your practice carries several benefits to assisting in achieving this goal. It will set you apart from standard practices, improve your relationships with referring ophthalmology and optometric practices, increase gross revenue, and improve the patient experience. I'll draw from my experience with scleral lenses at Bascom Palmer Eye Institute and explain how they've altered my management of patients with ectasia and ocular surface disease. And I'll also illustrate how scleral lenses and specialty lenses in general can transform your practice. Scleral contact lenses are increasing in popularity as they play a crucial role in the management of several corneal and ocular surface disease. 
Scleral lenses are rigid gas permeable contact lenses that are shaped to the patient's sclera, vault over the cornea, and deliver continuous hydration through a liquid bandage located between the cornea and the posterior surface of the lens. The combination of these details can help mask corneal irregularities and improve overall quality of vision, as well as provide relief for patients with severe ocular surface disease, such as patients with Steven Johnson syndrome, ocular graft-versus-host disease, ocular cicatrical pemphigoid, and etc. It'll also allow the disease to help heal. Because scleral lenses rest on the sclera and conjunctiva, which are substantially less innervated than the cornea, they are significantly more comfortable than corneal RGP lenses, and in some instances, can also deliver improved vision. This is likely due to the lens stability and improved centration. With modern day material having a decay of 200 and new modes of acquiring the corneal scleral profile to assist in complex fits with challenging anatomical limitations, the variety of patients that can be fit successfully has dramatically increased over the years. Several companies provide hardware and software that has the capability to create an initial scleral lens based on the profilometry of the patient's sclera. At Bascom Palmer Eye Institute, we perform corneal scleral topography on all new scleral lens fits. Then, based on the scleral tericity, I know what kind of fitting approach is best. For example, if the patient has a spherical sclera, I will fit her, him or her with a standard fitting set, assuming he or she will likely require few fitting changes. If the patient displays a regular scleral astigmatism, I'll, I will fit them with a standard fitting set, but insert the toric trial lens to get a better idea of lens rotation expectations and gouge the degree and the amount of the lens toricity that will need to be ordered. If there's a large amount of regular toricity, I will order a scleral lens with a toric haptic rather than an image-guided design unless the toricity is greater than about 400 microns. Once I have established that there's a large degree of scleral toricity, or that there is an irregular surface, I use an image-guided lens design. If the irregularity of the sclera is very severe, I adjust by changing to an impression-based scleral lens design. This allows for fewer remakes, shorter chair time, and increased lens cost due to the complexity of the fit. If you don't have access to all of these modalities to establish corneal scleral profilometry in your practice, you can use a more standard approach. This is completed by placing a trial scleral lens on the patient, evaluating the fit, and making appropriate adjustments to allow for proper alignment. It's very important that this initial lens has between 150 and 250 microns of central clearance. If not, continue to change your initial trial lens sagittal depth until it's achieved. Allow the trial lens to settle for about at least 15 to 20 minutes, then over-refract and assess the peripheral alignment for impingement or ledge lift. Modern lens laboratories have several ways to align with different anatomical challenges such as pinguecula, pterygium, blebs, with notches, microvolts, and channels. Incorporating scleral lenses into the modern-day medical optometry practice has several benefits for the practitioner, patient, and community ophthalmologists. Specialty lens fitters are few and far between, and when community ophthalmologists get wind that a local practitioner fits these lenses, they will likely begin referring patients for a myriad of corneal diseases, if they aren't already.
This can drastically increase referrals and improve the overall relationship between optometry and ophthalmology. Additionally, if you have a dry eye clinic or an eye center incorporated into your practice, rather than referring patients who have not responded to conventional modes of treatment to an outside provider to be fit with scleral lenses, you can keep them in-house. The national average cost for scleral lenses is about $500 up to $8,000 per eye. And the average cost of a trial set is between $250 and $500. This is a large return on your investment and increased profit. This can also provide an opportunity to allow for a smaller daily patient load and reap increased net gain. In addition to there being benefits to offering scleral lenses, there are some drawbacks. To become a specialty lens fitter, it requires time to be properly trained. Training can come in several forms, such as books, wet labs, conference lectures, webinars, virtual training, etc. Also, the fitting process is time consuming, as the majority of these cases require several lengthy visits. The cost of specialty lenses and lack of insurance coverage creates the problem of patients who would greatly benefit from the lens not being able to afford them. There are companies and foundations that can help and offer scleral lenses at a reduced cost for patients in need of financial assistance. The inconvenience of specialty lenses can deter patients from their use. For example, Debris collection within the reservoir and or debris accumulation on the surface of the lens may require patients to remove the lens midday, clean it, and then reinsert it. Offering specialty contact lenses to patients is a rewarding experience. It can help build your patient base and be a great asset in setting yourself apart from the standard optometric practice. There are several ways to incorporate scleral lenses into your practice, whether it be through the traditional fitting strategy or with sophisticated technology. When looking for new ways to differentiate your medical optometry practice or gain more traction with patient acquisition, consider incorporating specialty contact lenses. Hopefully you were able to take away some pointers on how these lenses can help you grow your patient base, stand out from the competition, and more. This is the part where we say goodbye until next time. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, find us on Apple Podcasts, iTube, Spotify, pretty much wherever you go to listen to podcasts. Until next time, be well.